Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody welcome to technicolor jesus where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors preachers and sunday school teachers my name is matt and i'm the pastor at university presbyterian church in austin texas and i'm adam and i'm a scholar minister and writer living in the great state of pennsylvania and if you're new to the show here's how it works we invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch and then we watch them from our perspective as ministers as theologians as folks who just love movies then we gather around for conversation this week, our guest Jill Duffield has asked us to go watch The Greatest Showman, so we've done it. And on our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask Jill what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology and in the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with The Greatest Showman for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be March 25th, Year B, Palm Sunday. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, We'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far along, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Jill Duffield is the editor of the Presbyterian Outlook, which is the preeminent magazine and curator of conversations, at least in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. Jill, it is so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So today we are talking about The Greatest Showman, which is, from my perspective, the sneakiest movie of this past holiday season. This is the musical erstwhile biopic of circus legend P.T. Barnum with Hugh Jackman and Michelle Williams and Zendaya and Zac Efron. It's a big, warm-hearted, family-friendly, life-affirming song and dance picture that feels almost totally out of place in 2018. And I think, to be honest, the reason I call it the sneakiest movie of the season is that it, it kind of came out with a thud on Christmas Day. It didn't get particularly good reviews. It couldn't find much real estate in a market that was saturated with The Last Jedi. And then something kind of weird happened. Audiences loved this movie. And so The Greatest Showman has had this kind of slow burn success. It built weekend to weekend, which like never happens. Here in Austin, it's still in theaters three months later. One of its big anthems, This Is Me, got nominated for a Best Original Song Academy Award. So there's, there's something going on with this movie. There's traction here, which is, which is part of the reason that we've circled back to it today. So, Jill, let me hand this to you. What do you make of the way this movie has caught on? And how do you think this movie can help us think about our roles as, as theologians or as ministers or in the church? Just take it away. Sure, Matt. You know, when I first saw it, I went actually was one of those people that went on Christmas Day with my family and just went strictly for entertainment purposes and thought it would be a feel good movie. And it was. And, you know, sort of the first blush is it's that all American story of a great man who, you know, through grit and self-determination pulls himself up by his bootstraps. And then you have the, the love story threads throughout, which kind of keep the story going. And, you know, it was entertaining, but I did find at the end of it that I felt really good. And there, there, there was this sense of 
empowerment and a sense of something is beautiful about humanity. And so I started to think about it a little more deeply and kind of saw some biblical and theological themes that that might bear fruit. And the fact that it's hopeful, I think, is important in our current context, because I'm not sure we have a lot that's particularly hopeful right now. Um, And so I started thinking about some of the themes of the movie, and the one that kept coming up again and again was the theme of community, sort of what makes for genuine community, who's in, who's out, uh, who is valued and who isn't. And all of the sort of the oddities is what they're called, right? When Barnum gathers these people together, there's something beautiful in this strange community that gets built that becomes a family. And so there's something in that that I think as a church we can dig into and look at. I also think there's a pretty good discussion to be had about what's the source of people's value, who counts and why do they count? I'm interested a little bit in the role of the critic in the film, and maybe we can talk about that. You know, who gets to say what's valuable and what's good and what's beautiful? And also, you know, the issue of race is present in this movie and class. Um, I don't know if we want to go to the direction of talking about what's truth and what's fake and what's humbug and what's authentic. Uh, so I felt like there were quite a few biblical themes in this movie. I also thought about Barnum, you know, and the idolatry of wealth and fame and, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? So right under the surface of all that entertainment and music and pageantry, I think there were some things of real depth and maybe that's why it continues to, to be in movie theaters. It, the theater here is still in Charlottesville all these months later. Mm. Adam, what about for you? Did, did you figure like this movie had some biblical themes that resonated for you? I, I think it did. I mean, along with the themes that Joe was talking about earlier, I, I, I found this movie strangely compelling, almost against my will at times. Um, I think part of that was that there is an infectious quality to it um, that comes in the form of, the music and dance. I think the dance in this movie is is particularly strong. Some of the music, some of the music is is good and interesting. Other times, I was like, I don't, I don't quite understand where this is coming from. Um, but I was, I was, I mean, like I said, almost against my will. I'm not a huge. Um, this is this is a movie built in the in the mold and the history of Baz Luhrmann. I don't think it exists without Baz Luhrmann. Right, and he's never been a. Uh, save for Strictly Ballroom, which I love, which is a great movie. Uh, everything since has been a little bit too um, confection to me. And so I was wrestling with that particular outer shell of sweetness, while also, like Jill, being strangely moved by some of the internal themes. Um, and and similarly, one of those themes is is the creating of, cre- of community. Um, and what was interesting to me is that this... Um, the communities that are created um, are held together uh, by a variety of things. So there is um, the upper crust and they are held together by their sort of mutual suspicion of each other. Right. That, um, Mm -hmm. and they, and they need people to tell them how to think. I mean, this is how they're portrayed in the movie. And so that's where the critic comes in as the sort of, not just the arbiter of good art, but a sort of almost moral arbiter of whether the art is worth um, uh, engaging. And then there is this secondary community, the, the sort of outcasts, the misfits, the people who don't fit in. And it was interesting to me that 
that that community is in many ways formed through the care of the, the their bodies, but also creating opportunities for people to in, see them and not see them, which was really important, I think, for this movie, which is it's it's trying to say, like, the outcast is seen and ignored disproportionately, where they are ignored because they, the, the, the world thinks that they have nothing to offer, or they are seen and gawked at. They are the mm-hmm. sort of marvel. And I think this movie is trying to wrestle with what, is, what does it mean to want to be seen, to be noticed, um, to be recognized for the good things that you can provide? Um, for the skills and talents that you have. Um, but also, what does it mean to have some security where you don't have to be seen when you don't want to be? And so that that vision of of seeing and not being seen, I think, is is a really powerful part of this movie. How about you, Matt? As you were watching it, what was sticking out to you? Well, I was just thinking about the kind of trajectory of the film. There's that opening line when he goes to, re- to recruit... Um, the 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 kind of Tom Thumb character, and 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 there's this clear sense that like this guy has been used to having people laugh at him his whole life, and mm-hmm. Barnum says, well they're gonna laugh at you anyway, you might as well get paid for it, uh, which is the kind of uh, is a kind of cynical take, right? I mean that 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 does not lay the groundwork for feeling valued and and worthy. Um, but I think what emerges is it's different to kind of do that in isolation than it is to do that as part of a community of people who are all in their own way, kind of these curiosities and oddities and who learn to love one another. And so they can be, they, I think they are providing value to one another that is different than the value that the crowd is providing or the profit of the circus is providing. And that was kind of the interesting take on community that I got. The, the question that lingered for me through the movie was, is Barnum himself a part of this community of oddballs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what I, I want to ask. That's what I want to ask you all, because I think that a lot of my, my sense of the movie hinges on that question. So is, is Barnum part of it? Yeah. And I, you know, I think he evolves over the movie a little bit too, with, with the, what part of the community he is, what part of the community he wants to be a part of. You know, at first, it seems like it's really about his own ambition and being accepted by the people who rejected him. And then to me, towards the end, when everybody else has sort of abandoned him and he's abandoned that community that he brought together, there is a sense of who's left when everything else is gone. And I think at that point, there is, at least to me, it feels like he is a part of that community and wants to be a part of that community, maybe for the first time when he's been seeking it elsewhere with the, you know, the folks who have money and wealth and the, you know, his wife's parents and the people who treated him badly and rejected him early on. So to me, it sort of evolves as to which circle he wants to be a part of and sees himself as a part of. Yeah. Additionally, I think that I think he even evolves past that community. I think that the community at the end of the movie does pull him back in and say, we we're, we'll love you. And that actually gives him the ability to recognize his family. Mm-hmm. 
as the sort of paradigmatic community that he's been searching for his entire life. Right. I mean, I mean, I think by the end he doesn't stay at the big top, right? Like he, I mean, spoiler alert, gives gives the <laughs> um, gives the responsibility to the Zac Efron character to run this family because, in fact, Zac Efron is the one who's been most notably inside of that community. And Barnum has always been circling it around it. He's always been the sort of sh- the shepherd of it, but never a part of it. And they give him space. And I think that's a, just a lovely moment where they actually come back and say, you, you can be part of our community because nobody else wants you. But that is ultimately the gift that they give him so that he can recognize that the person that, He's been um, all of the people that he's been trying to impress. He's misunderstood that, like his wife is the one who um, who has been his community since he was a small child, and um, and I, I like that. I actually found him to be the most uninteresting character in the whole story. Yeah, <laughs> I think right. I, I think Hugh Jackman does a good job. Um, I I couldn't get past um, the. The, the character of Barnum. I like the story and I like this film for what it is. And yeah, and this is a question that I also wanted to pose to you is uh, like, how, how do we deal with these hagiographic portraits of human beings in our movies? Because if you had changed the name and it wasn't PT Barnum and it was just somebody else. And you told me this story, I might, I, I don't know if I would have liked it more, but I suspect I would have. Because in the background is the real P.T. Barnum somewhere in history who doesn't look like Hugh Jackman, who I think is probably a little bit more cynical than this movie would let on, um, who is certainly more racist. And um, and so that that person, that real person is lingering in the background. And yet the church has always had space for hagiography. It's always had space for... um, these stories that we tell each other that aren't exactly historically accurate, and yet <laughs> they are edifying. Right. They right. they gather us. So I'm I'm struggling with that, and I and I wonder what you all think about that. Well, you know, I mean, it's always a little bit reductive, right? It has to be because they're trying to tell a story and have this thread, and we get that. But also with other saints and other people that we lift up as examples, it's aspirational, right? So there's, even though we might know, and sometimes it's important to know the flaws and and more of the story, still there are elements of these people that are worth emulating, right? So there is something aspirational about that, to have that imagination and that vision. Sometimes we need those models and examples. I think like the New Testament word like is pattern. You know, we sort of need those patterns, even though it's not as full a picture as we know exists. So there is something useful about it, I think. Yeah, I I had a similar reaction, which is that I found myself kind of imagining what the movie would be if it was about a a fictional circus entrepreneur, um, where I wasn't also reading the P.T. Barnum Wikipedia page while I was watching I the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I did that and then, too. <laughs> and, as, and then I was watch, as I was reading the P.T. Barnum Wikipedia page, I was thinking, oh man, this, this guy's really interesting. I would watch a movie about him, but I'm not sure this movie is it. Like there were like two other movies that I wasn't watching that I kind of kept imagining, enjoying. You know, I think the, 
the Philip Carlyle character in some ways to me was more interesting than Barnum because there was something about him that was self-sacrificing. I mean, he sort of gave some things up and, yeah. and, you know, kind of at the, that heroic scene, you know, he runs into the fire to save Anne. And, um, but there was something about him that was appealing to me because there was a sense of he is giving something up here for some, something better. But I, I, I agree with you, Jill, the, the Carlisle character recognizes the value of this community as opposed to the one that Barnum is chasing far earlier than Barnum ever does. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, um, and he, and he recognizes it, um, but doesn't quite know what to do with it. Um, he has, he has no model for being a part of it. He's never been an outcast in his life. So what does it mean to choose to be an outcast when you've come from such great privilege? And I, I actually think that the, that the movie leaves a little meat on the bone there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think it could have played a little bit more with that. I think the Carlisle character could have been a, a balance to the Barnum character as Carlisle better understands the line between the creation and care of a community versus the exploitation of this community. Yeah. And, right. um, and I, I wanted him to, to have a little bit, to be a, a bit more of the moral center. He becomes the romantic leading man. Um, but I wanted him to. I, I was kind of longing for him and and Barnum to have it out and to have their right. paradigm sort of like meet and see what kind of friction was going to uh, arise because of it. And and I think part of it is that the movie wants to have have it two ways in a in a respect, which is that they want it to be an affirmation of this community of oddballs and curiosities, but they also want Barnum to have a very normal quote-unquote, kind of heteronormative relationship and love story. And I thought that those two things kind of didn't necessarily always sync up together. And part of my frustration is the way in which um, they take the, um, the character of the singer and create this kind of love triangle that actually has, has no basis in, re- in history with P.T. Barnum historically. Uh, and it creates like romantic drama and romantic melodrama that didn't feel necessary. And then at the end, to to for P.T. Barnum to go back to his family and kind of assert that is beautiful in one way. But I, I guess I wanted to say, like, if, if what we're doing is is creating a family of oddballs, like, I, I want you to fully live yeah. into that. And I, I actually yeah. didn't. And in this weird way, I kind of didn't need him to. um to have to choose at the end between the family of oddballs and family of wife and daughters. I wanted them to be able to say, well, we're, we're kind of, we are, we are all on the margins together and we're going to create, and, and we're going to bring ourselves back to the center together. And it's not either or. Uh, and so that's, that was part of my frustration as I felt like in order to do this kind of mass market appeal thing, they had to put a nuclear family romance at the heart of it, which didn't need to be there. Right. And the other piece of that, at the end, he does end up, you know, affluent and with all the things that he realized he didn't need, he still gets. Right. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And, so and, I think and, that's a little gratuitous, too. It is. And and, and it leaves. Uh, the Michelle Williams character, Michelle Williams is underutilized, I think, ultimately, oh, yeah, because sure. number one, she might be the best actor in this whole movie by a, like a grand margin. Up, she up. is a really tremendous um actor and she does a lot with not very much and i was i thought she was 
utterly mesmerizing in this movie. I loved watching her in this movie. Um, and there was a part of me that wanted her to integrate into that community as well. Right. Um, because she was, in some ways, ideologically, the best prepared to do so. Yeah, mm -hmm. she's the one that really seems to express that unconditional love from the very beginning, right? So, so let me ask you all this, uh, just to kind of bring it into our arena a little more squarely. T to what extent in this movie do you see the the circus this community of outsiders this community of oddballs to what extent does that feel like metaphorically valuable for the way we talk about church you know i i i think about it sometimes in ter in terms of worship i mean more broadly than that but i guess that's the first place i sort of went with this because sometimes it feels like church is the last place you go when you are feeling vulnerable and needy right like you need to go and look your best and be your best and present in this, in a certain way and act in a certain way, or at least that's certainly been the case in a lot of the communities in which I've worshiped over the years. And when folks don't act in this particular way, people are uncomfortable. And, you know, if someone calls out or something happens in worship, everyone sort of freaks out a little bit. So I feel like we could learn <laughs> from this in being more open to the strange, um, and being more comfortable with that uh, and not having to present our best selves all the time when we walk into the church doors. Um, so that's the first place I went in terms of thinking of our Christian community. What about you, Adam? Does that metaphor resonate for you as you think about church life and circus life? Um, I find that as I've grown in my vocation, I feel very comfortable around other ministers and um, and the ability to talk just frankly about what that means among them is like deep respite and, and is among the few places that you can find rest in day-to-day um, -day ministry is when you have that other group of people who have chosen this strange path that is in some ways a performative one it is carnival barker it is trying to like point to all of these amazing things that you think are going to happen that you are hoping that they don't see every day in their in their regular life um and and so there is a community of people who are engaged in this and it's music ministers it's the choir it's other people who are all sort of like all right sunday is coming again here we go and they that that being a minister has lost its social cachet in a pretty dramatic way in the last 50 years. Right. right. Like the, the critics of the world don't look at the ministers for um, for understanding. Um, we have ceded all of our priestly power to pundits and uh, and columnists. And so at this point, like I feel like the church can be can feel like a sideshow. Um, but like Barnum, I think that there's an infectious like desire, like, okay, that's okay. That's still our job. We still have a place and what we can do here. Other people can't. And maybe it is the place where I, this word gets overused, but that you, you can be authentic in a different way that you can't on your, you know, social media or whatever, um, that that is, there is a space here for you to come 
as you are and be welcomed and valued and celebrated. That's the hope. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I guess I still hope that for congregations too, you know, I, I know that there is a, we do still inherit a lot of that put on your Sunday best mentality about coming to church and looking your best and acting your best and, and, you know, pretending like everything is, is fine. Everything is fine. But I, I, I'm not, I, I think one of the privileges of being in pastoral ministry is that you get to see very quickly before anybody else how untrue that is. Yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and how a community of people that looks like a, a, a community of well-dressed saints is actually a community of oddballs. Uh, and they may not be able to admit it to themselves, but I, so I, but there's, but there's value and beauty in that. Uh, and that's, that's what I appreciated about the movie was that it was helping me kind of articulate and understand the value and beauty of a congregation as a kind of community of misfits. And I, you know, not for nothing, I think in 2018, it is, it, it, it is less and less kind of normal to be going to a congregation and be thoroughly invested in the life of a church. And so that action already becomes a kind of misfit action. Uh, and, and as church leaders, right. Or as pastors, I mean, we should, be able to be misfit too, right? And and model that I think in appropriate ways. I hope so. That's that's my it's my best hope. I hope so too, because I mean we have a whole bunch of skills that don't really have value other places. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about that. I you know, know like TV, like right? where you're really good at the trapeze. Where else can you go? <laughs> right, right. You're yeah. you're really good at public extemporaneous prayer. Like Right. What, like where, where else are where you going to do this? Like where, yeah, there's, there are very few other locations where this can like have a place. And, and that's important to me. But I, I think additionally, too, to your comments, Matt, the, the ways in which these congregations are oddballs requires a minister who, like Barnum, says, oh, no, no, that's valuable. That weird thing yeah. that you think is very weird. No, no, no. That's really valuable. And we need to find a place for it in this yeah. environment so that you know that this thing that you thought was um, made you different is actually what makes you special. It is the thing that um, where you can uh, express uh, the fullest sense of yourself. And I think I think that does hold true for ministry as, as ministers trying to help congregations live into their oddball, oddball st- status and and be comfortable with it. Well, we are grateful for our partnership with The Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Right now, The Century has an excerpt from Mallory Ortberg's new book, The Mary Spinster, Tales of Everyday Horror. And this excerpt is a first-person account from the perspective of the angel who wrestles with Jacob, and it is delicious. And if you are a fan of Ortberg's writing, you're going to love it. And if you're not, you'll become one. So head over to their website, check this out. And also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Jill, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. For year B, that gives us the entry to the city in Mark 11, John's alternate take in John 12, 
We also, of course, get selections from Psalm 118, which is the source text for what the crowd proclaims, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jill, as you look at these passages for Palm Sunday, does anything stand out to you as particularly interesting as you reflect also on Greatest Showman? I started to think about when you affiliate with people on the margins, margins or fringes, that there's a price to be paid for that. And Jesus pays that price for affiliating with people on the fringes who are rejected or discounted. And so that resonated with this, with the film, with the group that Barnum gathers together. And then, of course, ultimately the fire at the building and the crowds who are shouting and have torches. So that was part of the connection I saw with Palm Sunday. And the other piece are just the whole notion of crowds, right? Cheering or um, angry or what causes one group to go one way or the other. Is it the same group? I know scholars disagree. Is it the same group that's cheering Jesus on that ultimately says crucify him? Um, so those were some of the things that resonated for me when I thought about Palm Sunday and, and some of the scenes from the movie. Yeah, I mean, and just listening to Jill and and her her comments, these crowds exist, and then there is this moment, at least in Mark's passage, of um, of emptiness. So Jesus comes in um, riding on this colt or donkey, or you know, depending on the the version, and uh, and it says that he 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 rides into Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple. And there was nobody there. And then he leaves. And I found reading the passage this time, the contrast between the crowds on the way in and the emptiness of the temple quite striking. And like Jill, this this moment of of hopes and expectations. What do you uh, that show up in The Greatest Showman? What, Barnum is chasing all of these hopes and he doesn't quite know what they are. And he's he's trying to feed himself something. Um, he's trying to find some sort of comfort and he chases it and he's finally, he finds himself alone. Right. Um, and I wonder what's going on with Jesus here. I, I wonder what he expected to happen when he arrived at the temple. Is there, is there something that he wanted to, to, to complete there? Did he, did he expect crowds to be there? Did he hope crowds would be there? What, is this a moment of disappointment? Is this a moment of sort of like Barnum early, like surveying the building and realizing, yes, this, this is where it will happen? Or is there something more? I'm, I'm still sort of wrestling with that, that moment. It seems so full of pathos, Jesus just hanging alone in the temple and going almost unnoticed, which in contrasting with the rest of the week where he's just constantly at the center of things is, is striking to me. Yeah, that struck me too. And I, and I thought, is this sort of, I mean, you know, of course we have the scenes throughout the gospel. He's always going to the temple, but is this kind of like Jesus going, okay, I'm coming here. And it's almost like a, a bookend in a way, or this is, I'm coming here as the touch point for all that happens next. But it did feel very striking to me reading that in the Mark text this time. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird verse. It's verse 11 at the very end of the pericope 
it's kind of the the seam verse between the Palm Sunday text and what comes next. Because what comes next is he immediately goes back on Monday morning and starts turning over tables. Uh, it doesn't actually say that he's alone. It, it, it says yeah. that. It says that he when he goes in and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Uh, and I, I've been struggling with this verse, too. We're all kind of in the same place. Um, I think there's some tradition to say that the crowds have have thinned over the course of the day. And mm-hmm. and, and now he finds himself by himself. Um, but the, the, the moment in the movie that kind of struck me thinking about this, because I'm I'm planning to preach on this verse and I'm still kind of wrestling with what it means um, was the, the moment when uh, um, Barnum has opened his big museum of all the extraordinary <laughs> weird things and no one's coming to it. Um, you know, he's got like the big stuffed animal, like different kinds of weird animals from around the world that are stuffed with things. And, um, but no one wants to go. And he's, and he's talking to his daughters when he puts them to bed at night. And they say, you know, Dad, like y- your museum needs living things in it. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. Right. It needs it needs life. Uh, and like there's this big, fabulous space and this big opportunity, and it doesn't work without without life inside it. And I, I I'm thinking about that with this moment because it's like I don't actually know enough about the Jerusalem temple practices to know whether or not Jesus would have walked in there on the evening of Palm Sunday and and found people or not would there have been activity um does he come in and see the merchants and then the next day come back to deal with them or does he come in and find it totally totally empty but in some ways it seems irrelevant because what he comes in and finds is a place that doesn't have life uh in this broader sense and and so he he what what it needs what it needs is is life which is what 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 he can provide in different ways that resonate throughout the rest of the week i'm i'm not entirely sure how that maps but i'm i'm thinking about it that way mm-hmm. yeah and i can't i i mean in in the greatest showman there's all of this talk of home like what is it like where do you live what does that say about you where is your home who is your home and i and it's hard for me to read this mark 11 passage um and not also hear that the shades of Luke when Jesus is a small child saying like, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? Right. Like, yeah. and, um, and I don't often like, we'll preach not across synoptics like that, but at this moment, there's something interesting to me about that, which like, what if like he's, he's showing up and there's people there or there's people not there, but he has that sense that like, that I think a lot of people have had at different points, which is you show up to the place that you thought was home and it's not right. And, and you're like, ah. and you really sincerely wanted it to be, you wanted it to be all of the place, the places that could hold your memory that could fit your identity as it's currently configured. And it doesn't. And mm-hmm. that's a, that's a bitter thing. And I, I, I think we're in danger always of making Palm Sunday as sort of Easter light. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I, I prefer Palm Sunday to have a little bitterness in it. And, and I'm always trying to figure out where that is. I mean, like you said earlier, Jill, I think sometimes preachers find it by contrasting the, the, the people waving palms with the, the people shouting crucify. But I wonder if there is a, another 
another way to provide a little bit of the of the tension of the day. Right, and that sense of I might really want to be here in this space that is has formed me and is critical to my ministry and and call, and yet I have to go out into the streets where you know ultimately I'm I'm going to be. They're going to call for me to be crucified, uh, and maybe that names a tension that I hear a lot. Maybe I'll do too. You know, is the church in the building, or is it out on the streets, or is it some combination thereof? And if so, how does one inform the other? Um, where is it that we're we're called to be in order to be faithful to following Jesus? Yeah, it strikes me as a as a very ironic service. Or like it's a very ironic liturgical day that that the crowd thinks that they are part of one kind of procession. They think they're part of a coronation procession and they're far, and they're part of a funeral march and they don't know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a service that hinges on dramatic irony. And I and I and I my favorite ways of conceiving the liturgy of that are are that somewhere in the proclamation of the word you have to you have to unmask the irony so that potentially, and you may not do it exactly this way, but so potentially you could sing the same hymn as the opening and closing hymn, and they would sound completely different because hmm. now they, because now they, ha- now the full ironic value of them has been unmasked. Mm, I like that a lot, man. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, don't, you don't have to end the service by singing a Monday Thursday hymn. You can end the service by singing all glory, Lord and honor, but now, you know what it means. It Put it different. in a minor key. Right. right. No, right. exactly. You know, yeah, I, that's, that's valuable. I think is how do we live into this strange tension, right? It's a, is it a coronation March? Is it a funeral procession or ultimately like, can we keep one eye on the following Sunday and have it, have it be something else, right? right. Like a parade, uh, something, something that, that recognizes that it might be all three of these. Yeah. Um, and we part of part of the liturgical job of Palm Sunday is to get you to those different places. Um, yeah, it might be it might be a gathering of misfits that is mocking the powers that be, which sounds a lot right, like right, a circus, right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so, or, yeah, and you know, there's something about the the, and I guess partly this is my context because I'm in Charlottesville, but the scenes in the movie where the guys have the torches, you know, mm. and they're like, "This is our town," kind of, "This is our place." Uh, there was there's something in that too, like whose whose kingdom is this, right? Uh, to whom does this belong? Right. And and I have to say, like this summer, we it started out on August 12th as kind of celebratory, right, with worship and this positive march of counter protesters, and then it got extremely ugly really fast. Um, and what did people come expecting to see and be part of? Mm. Um, maybe not what ultimately happened, right. right? So there's something in that, just thinking about to whom do these places belong and which power is the one that prevails? Um, yeah, especially in light of this last Sunday's lectionary passage where, I mean, the John passage is is saying, you know, Jesus is saying, like, I can't, I've come to drive out the ruler of this world. Right. And, um, and there's a part of me that reads that as, um, that's, that can be read as Pilate, who, I mean, tr- one traditional reading of Palm Sunday is that this is a sort of ironic, um, 
processional uh, to mock what would have been a military processional that would have happened on the other side of Jerusalem. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, which I think has some legs and some, uh, there's some interesting roots to preaching that. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet to your, to your point, Jill, who, who's, who's, whose city is this? Mm-hmm. Is it, um, is it pilots? Is it deaths? Who I think is who Jesus is talking about in the John passage about the ruler of the world. Right. Um, because death owns all cities. Um, is it God's? Well, ostensibly the temple is God's literal seat in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet Jesus is wrestling with all of that, I think, and is trying to figure out, okay, whosoever it is, um, it's going to change or I'm going to claim it as my own. <laughs> um, right. Right. Uh, but yeah, to your to like that question of like, well, whose whose world is this? Is a really powerful one. Well, I I think that probably wraps up our time. But I I so appreciate y'all's insights. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us, and I hope we'll have you back. That would, it would be great. I enjoyed it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for the good conversation. Thanks. Thank you. All right, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get one more little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? So, I, I really love the the dance in this movie, actually. I, it was my favorite part. And, and uh, I want to point out another quite remarkable dance movie um, called Pina. Uh, it's this very, very stylized retrospective of German modern dance choreographer Pina Bausch. Um, if you know anything about Pina Bausch, she is a sort of beloved um, choreographer in the modern dance world. And uh, and I don't remember how I stumbled onto her as a choreographer, but fell down a YouTube rabbit hole of Pina Bausch for about three days, just ingesting everything that she'd ever choreographed and and found this movie along the way. And it is just wonderfully wrought in a, it's very strange. It's very weird. It's not really a core. It's not really a documentary, but it's, it's like a concert movie, but for dance. Um, but the, but the visuals are better. Um, anyway, I find her work totally inspiring and moving. And I, I, I recommend this movie, but what's interesting to me about it is that she is a very, um, evocative choreographer and sometimes is so much with just small, subtle movements. Um, and it got me thinking about the ways in which liturgical dance um, gets goofed on by people in the church. And what I realized when I was at Andover Newton is um, I had a student who was uh, my, like the, the chapel attendant and steward who, who I worked really closely with and she Melody Ward was her name and she's an amazing, amazing minister and dancer and had taught dance for 30, 35 years or, and um, was a trained modern dancer. And we would talk a lot about dance and every so often she would dance, but she would do these improvised dances with our musician where the two of them would just sort of vibe with each other for a while. And it was so much better than most of the liturgical dance I've ever seen. And I realized just watching Pina and watching her dance that that there is a place for dance in the church. I've just I just have never figured out how to make it great and accessible to a group of people who find it um, a little um, 
out there. Yeah. So, um, but Pina Bausch gives me like deep hope that even like subtle movements that people could do could be a really valuable addition to worship. So that's what I got. Pina. So for me, this past week in Austin has been South by Southwest, uh, which is either a great time to be in Austin or a terrible time to be in Austin, depending on your disposition. Uh, South by Southwest <laughs> is the like massive festival of film and tech and music that takes over Austin during March. Um, I, but I was here, and so I did take advantage of the, the cheap local access to go downtown and hear some music. And I, I heard a lot of good things, but... One of my South by moments was an artist I want to lift up on the show. Her name is Liz Brazier. It is spelled Brasher, but it's pronounced Brazier. Liz is one of NPR Music's slingshot artists. She's an artist from Memphis whose local NPR affiliate is working to catapult her nationally. And I saw her do a quick set at the NPR showcase last Wednesday night, and it kind of knocked me over. Uh, Liz is coming out of this Memphis gospel blues rock place. She, she clearly grew up singing in the church. She grew up listening to a lot of Mahalia Jackson and a lot of Delta Blues and has put them together with really kind of powerful modern effect. I, I, I kind of think she might actually be the modern reincarnation of Mahalia Jackson, but I know I'm not supposed to believe in reincarnation, so just put that aside. But when I realized it was at the very end of her set, when after doing a bunch of originals that are on her new EP, she launches into a cover of Elijah Rock, the old spiritual. and. And I would not generally say that the audience at South by comes to hear spirituals, but like that whole room went to church anyway, at least for about four minutes there. She was just great and really powerful. And I, I don't think she's got the spirituals on the EP, but you can find her on YouTube and you can find some of those takes on YouTube and you can become as enamored as I have become. Anyway, her name again is, is Liz Brazier and I, I highly commend her to you. Great. I'm going to go and listen to that right now, actually. But that wraps it up for our episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss what, how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Muskowski. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, DJ on a Crane. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.